The promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act, the PACT Act, became law just a few months ago. It brought an expansion of services available to veterans and drew more veterans into eligibility. For a review and how things are going, we turn to a director at the National Veterans Legal Services Program, Rick Spataro. Mr. Spataro, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. And we should point out that as a Navy veteran, you are also a consumer to some degree of Veterans Affairs Services. Fair to say? That's fair to say. Um, I probably haven't taken advantage of them as much as I, I could. Uh, luckily, I'm pretty healthy. But, you know, my mission in life essentially is to help veterans get the benefits they deserve. Does so, help to have that experience as a veteran. And the PAC Act is pretty comprehensive. I mean, this was major legislation in terms of the effect. What are you seeing? I mean, I guess let's start with what veterans need to know in order to take advantage if, in fact, they are eligible for PACT Act benefits. Yes, this the PACT Act was a huge expansion of benefits primarily related to toxic exposures, as the name suggests. And it really impacts a lot of veterans who served in the Middle East, the Horn of Africa over the past really 20 years since, you know, September 11th. Uh, those are the ones that you see a lot in the news. Uh, a lot of the press has been about the increase in veteran benefits for those veterans. For example, many of the veterans who served in that area of the world, they are now entitled presumptively to benefits for many respiratory conditions, types of cancers, that there's been an increase in the incidence of those, those disabilities in those veterans, presumably related to burn pits, other airborne hazards. And this law makes it a lot easier for those veterans to get disability benefits for those types of conditions. So that's, that's the, the, what we see a lot of. But it really went even beyond that. There's, there's provisions in the PACT Act that help Vietnam veterans, for example. The law increases the number of areas where veterans are presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange back in the 60s and 70s. And it even adds diseases that there's been a lot of scientific evidence are linked to Agent Orange. For example, hypertension. Hypertension is the biggest one. So it will increase the number of Vietnam-era sure. veterans who now can get benefits for hypertension. Well, just a um, detail so, question here, because there was Agent Orange legislation, or maybe it was just rulemaking, a few years back that gave that presumptive coverage to anyone who had been, like, for example, in the planes that dropped Agent Orange and not merely the people on the ground where it might have been fuming around them. And then later on, there was the blue water for Navy veterans who had delivered the tanks or the canisters of Agent Orange. So did the PACT Act go beyond those two developments? Yes, it, it actually did, Tom. Uh, yeah, there's been a, a increase, a slow increase since the, the mid-80s, the early 90s, of the number of diseases that have been linked to Agent Orange exposure, as well as the areas where we've discovered that Agent Orange was used and other similar dioxins. So this act, uh, when we're talking about Agent Orange in particular, um, it increases the presumption to Thailand, for example, um, where there was fights for many years about whether veterans who served in Thailand were exposed. Um, now, anyone who served in Thailand during the Vietnam era will be presumed to have been exposed. But it also expands to areas like Guam, American Samoa, Laos, Cambodia. There's, there's small areas in those locations, uh, uh, Johnston Atoll, where now the VA will presume that the veteran was exposed simply by setting foot in one of those locations. And how would you rate Veterans Affairs 
efficacy so far in getting the word out to people that might not be using Veterans Affairs, say, and need to know this? Um, I actually think it's been, it hasn't been too bad. You know, there are provisions in the PACT Act that actually require the VA to reach out to veterans who were previously denied some of the benefits that are now available to them. Um, and there has been a lot of press about it. But of course, you know, it's hard to reach everyone. So the more word we can get out, the better. Um, we want as many veterans who are eligible and entitled to these benefits to get them. You know, it's what they deserve from their service. We're speaking with Navy surface warfare veteran Rick Spitaro. He's now director of training and publications for the National Veterans Legal Services Program. And what do you hear from your members and your constituents about how fast the processing is going for those that apply for benefits under the PACT Act? Because we do know that the VA is starting to build up that backlog again because of it. Absolutely, Tom. Well, we know that the law went into effect. It was signed into law on August 10th. And the VA did need some time to ramp up to get their their systems in place. And actually, in the beginning of this year, in January, they started processing these claims. Um, we're, you know, it's still very early in the process, uh, so we're still, we're still learning, but we know they are working on them, and it is going to increase their workload. There, is gonna, there are a lot more ben- veterans who are applying for benefits. So we, I have heard that, that you know, there are more app- the VA is seeing more applications because of the PACT Act, and we have some appeals in the system that were previously denied for benefits that are now presumptive in the PACT Act, for example. So it, it's affecting the appeals process as well. And we are seeing some of those claims granted. So we think it's, it's a good thing, uh, but it is going to take some time to get f- up to full speed for the VA. And speaking of appeals, I think in the latest book of the manual that you put out every year for veterans on the different programs for VA, it's been a few years since there was a modernization of the whole appeals process. I think it goes back to 2017. But now you've had some a good base of experience, a good database of experience on how that has all worked. What are you telling people this year? What are the learnings from the modernized appeal process? Well, there, there's, there's been a lot. It actually, the law was passed in 2017, and it went into effect in February 2019. The VA still has a, a big backlog of cases from the old system. Um, they're, they're whittling that down, and they, I think they hope to have it, basically all the old cases done within the next year or two. But we are learning that the new system, there's good and bad to it. There are definitely some some benefits. Veterans are seeing some good things because in some cases they are getting their claims adjudicated quicker by taking advantage of some of the new appeal options. But in other cases, there's there's some difficulties that arise because in order to increase that efficiency in the VA, for example, if you go to the Board of Veterans Appeals, now things like the duty to assist don't apply at the board where they did in the past. So there's pros and cons. Overall, in the long run, I think it will help veterans, um, but there's still some some stumbling blocks. All right. Well, it sounds like it's kind of a never-ending battle, or I shouldn't say battle, but never-ending effort to align what people know with what VA is doing and then just keep VA prodded to do what they should in terms of timing and, and speed, because I don't think it's fair to say VA does try to fulfill what it's supposed to do under the law, but sometimes it's just seems a little overwhelmed by the numbers. It's a huge bureaucracy, and there are millions of veterans. I mean, our nation has 22 million veterans. Many of them are disabled, and it is. It's hard to keep up with the number of veterans who are entitled to benefits and adjudicating those claims correctly. 
and you're always having turnover within the VA. Uh, the laws are very complicated. There's, you know, 35 books of case law from the Veterans Court alone. We have, uh, you know, thousands of pages of regulations, statutes from Congress. I mean, it's a very complicated area of law. And you have VA adjudicators who have relatively little experience for making the first decisions on lots of claims. So we see a lot of errors. They do try to get it right. But, you know, it's just mistakes are to be expected when you have that complicated an area of law, which is, you know, one of the reasons we put out our Veterans Benefits Manual to try to help advocates in particular understand what the laws are, ensure that they are making the right arguments for veterans, making sure that veterans know what the laws are so they can advocate for themselves as well. Um, but a lot of times with a complicated system, it's really key for the person representing the veteran to kind of lead that horse to water, as we like to say, sure. by showing them, look, here's what the law says. This is why I am entitled to benefits. I have the right evidence. Now, please grant my claim. And I guess if they have caller ID at VA and they see Spataro calling, they put somebody experienced on to answer that phone. You've been at this a long they time. <laughs> right. I, I have been. <laughs> Rick Spataro is Director of Training and Publications for the National Veterans Legal Services Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way. That's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You know. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.